I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. And this week on the show, we are expanding our horizons a touch. I said on the very first episode of the show that we were going to be talking to people from various different areas of music. And to date, we've been pretty restricted to DJs and musicians. But today we are, as I mentioned, pushing out a little bit further Uh, we have Mark Broadbent on the show. He is a pretty legendary promoter, I think it's fair to say. Uh, he's probably most well known for his work on We Love at Space in Ibiza, but um, he was also heavily involved in the Home Nightclub in Sydney um, and also in Cream Ibiza prior to that. Uh, he currently works on events at Pikes in Ibiza and also on various different festivals at Tisno in Croatia. So Love International and Defected and Hospitality amongst others there. So he's still very much involved in the live side of the business. And um, he's someone who I've known for a good few years. He was the first promoter to book me in Ibiza back in 2011 or 12 at We Love Space. That was the first time I'd actually ever been to the island. So working with him was a great introduction to it. And um, if you're not too familiar with Ibiza and the way it works and all that stuff, then this is going to be a super interesting episode. We talk about the advent of Acid House in the north of England, the uh, formation of Cream in Liverpool and all the stuff surrounding that, as well as Mark's career in Ibiza and in Australia. So yeah, before we get into it, leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this. It really does help. 
Join us in the Discord. There is a link in the show notes to get to the Hot Flush Discord in which there is a uh, Not A Diving podcast channel. Follow the Spotify playlist where you can listen to much of the music that we discuss on the show. And um, yeah, I think we're just going to get into it. So without further delay, here is Mark Broadbent. Mark Broadbent, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you, Paul. Thanks for asking me on. You're in Ibiza at the moment, I take it. I am in Ibiza. Um, strangely, very, very rainy uh, Ibiza that, um, this, this last month. How is it on your island? Yeah, I'm in Mallorca and um, it's basically exactly the same. It's absolutely miserable today. It's just not, not really not really great. It's not what, we're, not what we're signed up for, is it? Well, no, exactly. And uh, well, that was my first question, really, because like you're... You're a kind of a beef resident of of many years at this point, but what's it like in like in the off season? Because I mean, everyone who's listening to this probably has a pretty good idea about what it's like in the summer. But like, yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I mean, it's fantastic. You know, kind of like I mean, spring and autumn are my favourite times of the year, to be fair. And like in recent years, um, although I'm told it isn't normally like that, like, you know, this is like kind of a bit of an anomaly the last sort of six, seven years. It's been absolutely fantastic weather up until like late December. And then kind of me and Sarah go on holiday, um, leaving leaving everybody having a wonderful time here in January and stuff, and then come back and it always rains like kind of March, February, March onwards until sort of like mid-April. But this doesn't look like it's got any uh, signs of giving up anytime soon. Well, what's the atmosphere like on the island, though? Because, I mean, like everything is kind of, everything closes down. It's a very seasonal place. Yeah, no, it's quiet, mate. It's quiet. It's kind of a time for reflection and kind of doing all your, uh, getting getting ready for the season or like putting the season to bed, you know, kind of repairing your houses from uh, what has been damaged during the summer and getting it ready for the sort of, uh, for the next summer. So kind of people hunker down. Uh, we have we have like dinners with friends and stuff that we've not been able to see over the summer months. Uh, me and my brother and, uh, and my wife said we do a lot of walking around the island uh, and kind of get to enjoy the island when uh, when it's when it's quiet and there's not many people about, which we don't really do in summer because a we're super busy or I'm travelling, you know I'm backwards and forwards between here and Croatia or I'm working or in bed with a hangover, um, and we don't actually get time to see uh, people during the summer months. And there's enough open, there is enough open. Like, there's like, you know, there's nice restaurants open. We've got friends that run bars, so we kind of go and see them and stuff. There's enough to keep you entertained. And what's the community like of people that live there all year round? Because, I mean, I heard, well, I have heard from a few people that it, it's a bit, um, it can get a little bit tinfoil hat over there um, with like the... Uh... <laughs> well, that's the north of the island. Right, okay. The, the north of the island is very, very tinfoil hat, uh, and we kind of stay away from there, to be fair. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it's it's like any small place. I mean, I'm from quite a small town myself, so it's kind of, you, you, I was sort of used to that insular uh, mindset. Um, but I don't know, we, we kind of mind our own business, and, uh, and it, it, I like it here. I, I, I much prefer it here out of season than I do in the season to be fair and it's not just because I've got to work a lot during the season it's just uh it's it's nicer atmosphere although in recent years I live in the marina as you know because you've been to my house um and in recent years there's been kind of um there's been a lot of people moving out so it's a bit ghost towny at the moment to be fair where I live 
but you know I'm like five minutes from the centre of Ibiza town walking so you know if, if I need to see anybody or if I start getting too stir crazy and lonely I just kind of walk walk into town do my shopping and uh, and there's plenty of people about so just stepping back back a bit for people who are listening to this who have never heard of you before how would you define like what you do now in uh, in in music and 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 maybe just a little brief overview of of um of why people possibly should have heard of you at this point <laughs> well do you know what i see it's, it's a difficult thing to say that and it to talk about yourself is not not easy and i never liked doing it uh, even when i was kind of semi-famous if you like uh, but essentially i um i run i run and and still do run um events in uh, nightclub spaces I, I put festivals on um i mean most famously i kind of i programmed the music for um, we love um, space, which is a you know a big institution in 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 Ibiza from um, 2001 to 2013 when I left. Um, so I guess that's kind of where I was. You know, I would have been more well known than than not. And then I did like a, we did festivals in the UK. We ran Homelands Festival. Uh, me, Sarah, and my partner, business partner Darren Hughes. Uh, I programmed all of those, uh, all of those events, and I, I'm partners in a company called The Bird, who own the, who own the um, festival site in Tisno, where we've got Deck Mantle and Love International, Defected, a few other like kind of festivals over there, as well. So I'm kind of back scenes, I guess, uh, back scenes in musical programming. Right, and so. Just talking about the way the kind of live music landscape is today, having come out of, of obviously this pandemic thing and all the rest of it. Like, what is the um, like going into this summer? Like, how is everything in you know in terms of what you're doing at the moment? Like, what is the um, what is the landscape like having coming out of that period? Well, I mean, what I do uh, on Ibiza anyway, it's, um, you know, it's kind of, uh, I, I've, I, run, I run a weekly event um, at Pike's Hotel um, in the hills of San Antonio, and we do a very Balearic thing, and it's a really, is a friends and family thing, so, you know, around this time of year, people get in contact and say, we're coming over, um, is there any space, can we do some, so, you know, it's like, I mean, during the pandemic, we we didn't really slow down too much. It was still good. It changed, you know. It changed the the dynamic changed. Like it was seated and stuff. But we did really well. And people, we were one of the only things um, like kind of nighttime entertainment on offer. So we um, we weathered the storm really well, and uh, it's it's looking fine this year. You know, I mean. I don't have much to do with the clubs and stuff here, and don't really know the people who were involved in them anymore. So I'm kind of a bit of a boring person to talk to about Ibiza. You know, I do my thing. I keep my head down with my brother and my wife Sarah. She, Sarah is the um, she's the events manager at the hotel. Um, so we kind of, you know, we've got our little team there and we get stuck into it. And uh, you know, I'm very fortunate in the fact that it's a great place to play for people of our age. You know, and uh, so. I don't really have to go looking for too much. People come to us and say, can we do this? We'd like to do that. Is there space to do this? And, it, you know, that's an incredibly fortunate position to be in. Um, looking around, I mean, uh, you know, I live in the centre of town. All the bars are getting ready. Uh, it's that time of year again. Everybody's, like, painting and decorating. You can hear, you can hear the activity. And there's, there's definitely, like, a buzz in the air. People are... are are looking forward to this summer. I think it's going to be. Um, I think it's going to be really busy. And 
how about in Croatia, like the, the festival kind of circuit in Croatia, which has obviously developed a uh, notable amount over the past few years? Like, how's that shaping up for the summer? Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's amazing, Paul. It's like, I think what's happened, like, with with the kind of lockdown and people not being able to go to places and there being a backlog of festival tickets to, you know, like, if you bought a ticket in 2019, it's valid for 2000, blah, blah, blah. There's, you know, uh, as soon as tickets go on sale for festivals, they're sold out. I think we've got seven festivals this year on our site, and I think that they're pretty much all sold out now. Um, and I think that they sold out, you know, within a couple of months of being released. I know that Love International sold out in about four days. Uh, Defected sold out in, you know, three days. And it, it's been a, it's been amazing, to be fair. Um, you know, we we opened last year. We had uh, we didn't do all of the festivals because we couldn't open until I think towards the end of July. So we missed a couple of our festivals. Love International being a key one uh, that didn't happen last year. So. You know that's come back on online this year, and and it, it sold out immediately. So you know we're in again we're in a, a, a wonderfully fortunate position that we've got a product that people just love. So you know we've got people like people clamouring to come and work with us, and which is just amazing. You know it's a lovely lovely position to be in. Yeah. As far as the rest of Croatia goes, do you know what I'm 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 ashamed to say I've not been. I've not been to Havard. I don't know what those other places are like. I am told that I wouldn't like them, <laughs> but uh, that wouldn't normally stop me from going and having a look, to be fair. You wouldn't like them? Why? Um, I don't know. I've, everybody says, oh, you wouldn't like them, Mark. It's too much like Ibiza. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of funny seeing as I live here. Well, I mean, one of the things I want to try and explore uh, during this podcast is like the kind of relationship between the two things and to what extent one has replaced the other. Because obviously, um, you know, beef has got so much more expensive in in the last ten years, and I think like, there's a, probably a degree of uh, young people being priced out of the market there. Um, at least that's the kind of received wisdom to it, anyway. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I wonder, like, like how do you see those two things as kind of like coexisting? And and you know, has like Creator taken something from a beefer? And if so, like, how's that playing out? Well, I mean, I don't know whether it's. I think it may have. I think people have moved on to Croatia. What we do in Croatia, it's quite kind of quite niche, uh, and what's happening on Ibiza now is very, very mainstream. It's high street. Uh, it's busy. Ibiza is busier than it's ever been. Two thousand and nineteen was its busiest season before pre-pandemic. Just in terms of like raw people coming to the island, you mean? Numbers like hotels were at ninety-nine percent occupancy, which is like huge. And uh, most of those people were uh, were, were nightclub uh, tourists, you know. But it is incredibly mainstream now. Uh, whereas we, in for our site in in Croatia, most of the most of the events, if the house music, it's kind of focusing on a certain type of house music. If it's or it could be broken beat or it could be drum and bass, whatever. They're all kind of quite niche, you know. We do like quite. Um, quite small festivals i think our biggest is a, is about five and a half thousand and that strangely enough is defected which here on ibiza is very very mainstream but in croatia the pro luke luke solomon does the programming i believe and uh he he kind of like goes a bit left of center and it's kind of more aimed towards their global brand market which is you know australia australia america 
Japan, uh, the, you know, the crowd that they defected in Croatia is very, very different animal to what it is in Ibiza in San Antonio, which is very kind of straight up high street. And, and the programming of those events reflects that. Okay, that's really interesting because, I mean, I was just going to say that defected as a brand would strike me as being quite mainstream, but, but it's a, um, is it a conscious thing for them then to like to to really like? Well, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so because they like they they put on acts people like Theo Parish, Moody Man, uh, Masters at Work. Um, you know, they've got the class. They have they do have the big Byron Stingleys and stuff like that, or you know whatever their equivalent is on their label. Uh, but it's kind of you don't see things you don't see too many shapeshifters and and things like that you know more the more kind of commercial high street edge house music to it right it seems to me to be a bit more kind of leaning towards um an older market rather than san antonio uh, what they do in san antonio is definitely for you know kids who wouldn't who wouldn't who wouldn't appreciate theo parish playing in in eden in san antonio you know Okay. Um, I mean, it might actually be helpful just to pull apart um, like the different like sides of a beefer and also, I guess, how it fits into Croatia. Because just for people who don't, who maybe listen to this and who haven't been to the island, and because there are sort of distinctive parts of it, obviously, like you know, San Antonio, as you say, yeah, is um, is where the kids go. I guess is that is that fair? Yeah, we've got two. We've got two main. We've this this. I guess there's three main tourist zones. There's Playa de Mbosa and San Antonio, and then Ibiza Town. Now, Ibiza Town has always traditionally been kind of a little bit older, uh, a, a little bit glamorous. Although it's you know over recent years, it's it, it it's again it's all changing. Uh, it's constantly changing. Is Ibiza uh, for Ibiza Town? You'd go to Pasha and you might go to some other clubs, but it's mainly about hanging around in the restaurants and the bars and stuff. Whereas San Antonio is predominantly British and. The, the people that go to San Antonio are targeted with the clubs that are promoted for them, like often, or it used to be, with British promoting, British promotions. I think that mainly now they're all in-house. The clubs have got, like, bookers and stuff like that rather than promoters working for them. And then Player and Bossa is, like, Italians and everybody else, all the other Europeans, essentially. And, uh, again, that you know, they, they, will be, they will be kind of, like, um, herded towards high and Ushuaia and, and those kind of like, you know, just big, big commercial clubs. Right. And how... And Go then on. you have this, the rest of the island, you have the rest of the island that nobody ever goes to when they come on holiday that's absolutely stunningly beautiful, quite mountainous and, you know, pine trees all over, uh, beautiful beaches that, you know, thankfully, um, most, most, of the, most of the kind of like younger um, mainstream tourists kids um don't don't find right and I mean, how has that changed over time because i mean I, I guess there's a perception that as as i mentioned over the last 10 years it's got more expensive like kids have been priced out but like i'm not i'm just not sure how like how that has really sort of manifested itself so like so from when you like you mentioned that you were you know programming we love from 2001 but you've obviously been coming going to the island for a long time prior to that so have you seen that sort of dynamic change well we got here it wasn't that long ago actually paul we got here i think me and sarah started working here in 1996 at amnesia and we were running cream then for darren um and i mean ibf is funny because it's like when we first got here it was full of old people complaining about how we were changing the face of ibf 
And um, I mean, I guess that to answer your question, there's just a lot more people here now. Um, essentially, you, I think that, you know, everybody that comes to Ibiza has the same time that I had the first time I came here. It's just great. You know, it's set up for young people to have, a, have to forget about work and to have the best time possible. Yes, it's here. It's to take your money. Uh, but people understand that, you know, you get talking to kids or I used to talk to them when I was running clubs and, you know, I'd say, do you find it expensive? And they say, yeah, but, it, you know, you just spend your money anyway. Whatever you've got, you'll spend wherever you are. So it's just kind of like, you know, these people work, they're stacking shells in Tesco's or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, they, they kind of, they save up all year for the two weeks holiday. Um, and they're still doing that. So... Like you just mentioned that, um, like you were perceived as being uh, what as 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 changing the islands when you were doing cream in '96. So what? So what was that? Changing from what to what? Yeah, you know what old hippies are like, Paul. Well, I mean, I'm, I just I just want to sketch it out for people. Uh, well, it, you know, people just complain all the time. Oh, it's not as good as it used to be. Um, and I think that when uh, you know, I mean, there are the the main the major changes since I've got here. There's been two motorways, um, like. Um, built that used to be kind of single track roads now i personally think it's a good thing because it's it stopped a lot of people dying but you know the kind of old guard that were here they 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 state those motorways being built as a kind of pinnacle time in the change of ib for because life speeded up yeah so i don't see it as being a problem because um you know when we first got here it used to take like you know three weeks to get a fax machine fitted um, and it'd be incredibly frustrating when you're trying to run a business and your business is only open for 12 weeks, waiting three weeks for a fax machine or four weeks to get a landline at your villa and stuff. Now, you know, the life life on the island has changed. It's speeded up. It's become more modern. Um, but that's enabled us to kind of move forward. Um, I don't want to live in the hippie it, with the hippies in the mountains and not do anything. I'm I'm here to 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 make a living and you know to a kind of to 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 live to live a modern life. It's super interesting that you mentioned those motorways because that never occurred to me. But yeah, it must have been a big change because I mean, um, you know, just getting to and from the airport and the whole—I mean, the, it's kind of the artery, right, of of the island now. Those 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 roads. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at one point, at one point, Paul, I can remember reading an article. It was in something awful, like one of those man, men's magazines that were about in the nineties, and they do like these, um, you know, these things like, and it was like the ten most dangerous roads in the world, and Ibiza was about number five, and the road to Basra was about number six in deaths <laughs> right. do you know what I mean it's like there were people dying all the time I remember one day um, I was going to space to do the de- not space amnesia to do the decor and we passed two cars that had crashed head- and there was like there were like five people in each car and they were all dead ten people in a, in a head on collision and like some kid had lost his head and they were out in the fields looking for the fucking head and stuff it was just like and that used to happen all the time you know there would be deaths on the road all the time, and that and building the motorways has stopped that. And yet st- people still complain about the motorways being terrible. Okay, so just just to sort of like relate it to Croatia again, to what extent has something has anything been lost? I mean, this is a question. I mean, I genuinely don't know this. Like, to to what extent has t- Croatia taken something? from a beefer would you say is it is i mean has it at all or like where does it fit in no i don't think so i mean maybe it has as i say i've not visited the kind of the more populous regions of croatia 
like Havar and uh, th- those those areas, which I, I am told they're like uh, you know they've got super clubs on the beach and things like that. What we do is very kind of like backwards and uh, like for those in the know kind of vibe although obviously it's become more popular uh, over recent years since I got there so maybe maybe that's a you know maybe uh, that's that's a common factor um, who, who knows how many tickets are those festivals how many tickets do we do I think our, sm- our smallest festival is three and a half thousand and the biggest we cap at five and a half and then they've got the guests you know DJs and stuff so it's almost six thousand people uh, but uh, but that's a busy one, um, and the site uh, we kind of the site would take more, but we're kind of limited to how many people we can get there by the surrounding towns and stuff not being able to accommodate any more people. So it's really small. Like tis nowhere we do the festival. Um, its population in in winter time is seven hundred and fifty people. So like you know during the during the, the the kind of eight week period that we're there for, and the festivals that we put on are, are like week long festivals. So you've got like six thousand people descending on a town that's used to having seven hundred and fifty people. It's it's quite it's quite crazy. You know, it's like the circus has come to town. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, what have we what what's missing from Ibiza that's now in Croatia? People. Right, but there's no no shortage of of people in Ibiza, so no, no, absolutely. So as you you know, what we used to be, in, what we used to do, Paul, was kind of quite niche and underground, wasn't it? But now it's like it's the sound of the high street. Everybody, uh, everybody knows what house music is. Like you know, Europe wide, worldwide, it's you know, it's the sound of the high street. Yeah, totally. So just um, stepping back again, um, I just want to talk about your sort of journey into doing all this stuff you're obviously from uk and are old enough to remember the whole acid house thing which is something that i've missed out on by a few years not too many years but uh, a few years so um perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about your kind of journey into music and how you got involved in you know in in the rave scene generally and all that well yeah i mean i'm actually i'm sadly i'm i'm, I'm old enough to remember pre-acid house like you know i was kind of I'm, oh yeah I'm, so, so. you know i think i started i think i started going out to nightclubs in 1984 so um you know i'm kind of uh i'm that old there you go um and before you know we used to uh, i mean so were, what 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 clubs were you going to in 84 uh well local ones are like there would have been like the, i'm from huddersfield so like we went to we went to the obviously to local pubs and clubs in Huddersfield and it would be like changing lights and um the coach house was uh, was one that I used to go to but then we started going to like Wakefield and it would be like a rooftop gardens Casanovas uh, Wakefield Pussycats like straight up high street clubs you know um where you know where you had to wear shiny shiny shirts and and shoes and 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 occasionally ties and stuff like that um yeah so you know very very uh pre-acid house and i think around at 86 or something was the first time we start they started like dj started playing different music that wasn't just chart music and started hearing stuff like farley jack master funk and you know esp and jackie body and melon kim and stuff like that uh, mr fingers occasionally they would have like a 20 minute section where they played this kind of you know in, in inverted commas alternative music and it would be house music and occasionally they'd have like stuff like Sisters of Mercy in there and everything got lumped into this kind of 20 minutes, half hour section. And we we're all like, what's this? This is fantastic, you know? 
um and then kind of um yeah right and that sort of uh that would that would have been around 86 87 and then myself and sarah went on holiday to london um around 88 and we're in camden what's it camden palace yeah 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 and yeah. uh genesis Piorin from psychic tv had got a store stall there and he's selling all this kind of acid house stuff and it was the first time which i knew anything about it i mean i'd read about it in the face but the first time I actually came across it was in Camden Palace. And, um, right. yeah, and there, there were, like, all these T-shirts. Camden something. Palace, which is um, which is now called Coco. It's the same venue, basically it's the same place, right? It's, it's an old theatre. Yeah, right, okay. I've not been there for a long time. It was amazing. It was really, really eye-opening, eye-opening to be fair, because there's all these kind of interesting tribes there that, would, that, would, that weren't in the North. You know, everybody kind of looked pretty much the same in the North. There were either Goths or there were Townies. Um, especially in, in West Yorkshire, anyway. Um, I think if you if you ventured to Manchester, you would see some soul boys and stuff like that. But it was like kind of a, London was like a, much more colourful. And as I say, I kind of bumped into Genesis P Orange from Psychic TV, and he'd got uh, he'd got an EP out at the time called Jack the Tab. So I kind of understood that there was a connotation, a drug connotation there, which kind of like as an eighteen year old, sort of like uh, was sort of interesting, you know. And it was the first time I saw people wearing smiley face T-shirts and patches and like uh, baggy gloves and, uh, you know, Levi 501s and stuff like that. And it's like kind of, oh, wow, okay, what's going on here? So I got that EP um, and and like kind of, uh, yeah. Can I just, let me just clarify something. Let me just clarify. When you say he had a stall, you mean, because this just really reminds me of... uh, an aspect of of clubs which just doesn't exist now, which is like having like this little market set up in the venue. Is that is that what you're talking about? So they're selling. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't like there, there was music and stuff there, but primarily it was more of a shopping experience than a nightclub. And this was during the day, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, not 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 a night. It wasn't. I hadn't gone down there at night. We we're just in Camden, in Camden lot during the day, and we popped into Camden Palace, and there was all like people selling interesting stuff. There was uh, sedentaries. Um, and this, this, the main stall that was interesting was this psychic TV one because it's like very sim, lots of symbolism and kind of interesting noises coming from there and really odd characters like hanging about. So I was naturally drawn towards it, right? Because I mean, so I was just reminded of going to like at the early sort of trance parties in the sort of early to mid 90s, and they there was definitely, a- yeah, and the chai stores and that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is something which I mean, it's, it's like it's like chill out rooms, right? That doesn't really just doesn't really happen anymore. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's like, I think that 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 kind of vibe comes from the from the goa parties, you know, like in Anjuna and stuff. Like Wednesdays at Anjuna, Anjuna Market would then turn into like a a rave down at the Shore Bar, right? Uh, and there would so the kind of those kind of I think you're probably talking about Whirly Gig and Mega Dog and stuff like that, aren't you? Yeah, I think I am. Yeah. Yeah. So they they came directly from uh, from uh, from the kind of uh, the Anjuna scene. Right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So, but but like, okay, we're just getting getting a bit ahead of ourselves. So in like eighty six, eighty seven, you go down to London and like you know suddenly this thing's happening. And how long did it take for that to start sort of showing itself up north? Well, and I particularly think... like outside Manchester, I guess. Because I mean, Manchester has that kind of like no, image of no, being. I mean... gone. Yeah, I mean, uh, to be fair, Paul, it, it, it was already happening in places like Sheffield, Jive Turkey and Manchester. It was already going on. I just wasn't, I wasn't massively aware of it because I wasn't really, I was, you know, I wasn't really 
of that age to go ex exploring but kind of once i'd got a taste for it uh, in in that summer of 88 uh, that was it then do you know what i mean we were going to the bigger cities and and going to these uh, venues that were doing it but you know i guess that like i mean the hacienda had been open for like a couple of years before then and they were they were always like doing interesting things although i do believe that they were pretty poorly attended for the most part right and i think that uh, the first time it ever really got busy was uh was the kind of nude friday nights around 89 oh really um, okay. and that's from yeah so for yeah i think before then it would like they would have a case they mainly focused on live music and they had you know so the, sorry just to clarify this is the hacienda in manchester which is obviously like legendary venue for for acid house but i mean i didn't know anything about the way it started so yeah yeah i mean it, you know it, it was owned by it was owned by new order actually i, I mean it's it's, a, it's an off-told story to be fair I, we went to the we went to the to the hacienda but that wasn't our main club to be fair in manchester we we used to go to like other clubs like conspiracy and gallery and um thunderdome in miles platin and stuff like that that i'd like it was a bit harder edged like the hacienda was really good um, if you if you liked kind of like massive crowds and piano house, uh, arms in the air, ecstasy vibes, kind of which I did enjoy at first, but like you know, I kind of like sort of sort of got out of that, and I wanted the, I wanted the harder edge stuff. I wanted to go where where the real Mancunians were for a start, and the Hacienda was full of tourists. Really, from early on. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's like when I say tourists, it was lots of students and stuff that moved there. I mean, I think that the universities in Manchester applications went up tenfold in like around the sort of late eighties, early nineties because of the Hacienda. Right. So, and, and the same happened in uh, in Liverpool with Cream as well. Like people, like British people, love nightclubs, don't they? So as soon as uh, as soon as as soon as there's some getting some kind of press, um, that <laughs> the universities do really well. Right. So yeah, tell me about some of those other clubs that you were more interested in then, where some bit of a harder stuff was getting played. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, my fav my favourite one was probably Conspiracy, and they had, the DJs there were called uh, the Jam MCs, and they were just phenomenal. Um, and it, it was like um, it, it was under I think it was under Victorian Vic, uh, Victoria train station or somewhere really close to that. Right. And uh, it was just uh, like a warren, a warren of um, of cellar rooms, and it was all kind of artex. But they got like all those uh, those fantastic oil lamps in there, and and it was basically full of like uh, the dodgiest people you've ever met in your life, like full of half a sulphur drug dealers and stuff in there. But it was sound, you know. Everybody was like friendly. Um, there was, I never ever saw any trouble um, in those times. Like uh, kind of the trouble sort of stemmed from. From the Hacienda, actually, right? Um, you know, the, it, like people wanting to take the door and to sell drugs in there uh, because there were so many people going there. And I believe that Conspiracy and Thunderdome and the gallery and stuff; those were the places where the gangsters had the nights off. You know, <laughs> so there weren't. They're all various, like uh, various crews in there from different parts of uh, of the city. But I never saw any trouble in there. It was always it was always good. Whereas you go to the Hacienda and they'd be like fucking, they'd be shooting the door staff and like trying to get in with guns. And you know they had metal detectors on the doors. First time I saw metal detectors on a club door was at the Hacienda. So it's kind of like you know we just stayed away from there uh, after about you know nineteen ninety. So what was getting played? What music was getting played at those at conspiracy and those other clubs? Well, it would be like kind of bleep techno, and they were they are different, you know, kind of all the all the warp stuff. It's, I mean, it's difficult to fully remember, and you know, I'm not, I, 
I was always like so so involved in the music itself, dancing and stuff. I was never kind of like wanting, you know, what's this, mate? What are you playing? I was never really one of those people. Um, but uh, it was kind of, you know, the sort of more harder edge, bleepy stuff. And then they had different rooms. They had a, you know, they, they would have like a the kind of indie dance, I guess. But that went that's the Balearic beats, you know, which is kind of, uh, you know, what we what we do in Ibiza. Uh, just mi- a mix-up of everything. The gallery uh, had like one kind of room that was more sort of a ha- acid house techno, uh, and then another room upstairs that was like just straight up indie dance, you know, in spiral carpets, stone roses, the fall, that kind of vibe. And uh, th- those were the places that I liked the best because I'm into music rather than sort of genre specific. I like all different types of things. So. I mean, for me, there's nothing more boring than going to one, uh, going somewhere and it just being like, you know, kind of linear, kind of how linear minimal house or minimal techno all night long. It's just, it, it, I just, I get bored after about two hours. And um, in terms of it, like the DJs, was it? I'm, I'm guessing it was mostly UK DJs. But like, at what point did I, I guess the kind of culture of booking, you know, paying money for you know big guests and all that kind of stuff, like. I'm fairly sure that didn't really exist in the period that you're talking about. No, well, I mean, we saw like we did see people like Derek May and and that in in Manchester, and was you know sort of like the the kind of early techno pioneers from Detroit and stuff would make the journey over. Um, I think Marshall Jefferson, I saw that Hacienda and stuff in the eighties, um, and I think I mean Darren Hughes is probably responsible for like the importing DJs on a large scale um, in sort of like in the early 90s, 91 when Cream first set up and Dave Beer, they they really pioneered the bringing over of those kind of big name DJs in the north. Anyway, I can't really talk about the south so I didn't party down there. Um, but yeah, it would have been like, you know, I used to go and see Graham Park a lot in Manchester and Nottingham. He had a, he had a club called The Garage in Nottingham that was really good. A guy called John De Silva in Manchester who was superb. But my favourites were the Jam MCs. And, uh, you know, they they just had, like, a very eclectic taste to play techno and house and, you know, hip house and, and, and pop music as well. You know, they wouldn't be averse to playing Mel and Kim and stuff like that. And it just, like, that was the thing that got me. I You know, eclectic selections. Uh, that's 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 always been my thing, kind of. I don't want to hear just one type of music all, all night, which is that kind of reflects in my programming of DJs. You know, I would always try and, like, I would book the best DJs of doing what they do, but mix it up so that over the night it wasn't just kind of like one sound. Yeah. Okay. I mean, my experience at We Love was was exactly that, and it and it really worked. Yeah. But um, just just going back to what you said about well, you you mentioned Darren Hughes and also Dave Beer, who was the um back to basics promoter, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Dave was actually he was actually a road road roadie for the for the mission and the Sisters of Mercy. Oh, really? Okay. And then um and then kind of. Yeah, and then kind of went like totally went acid house in about in you know in sort of around ninety and set up back to basics. I believe nineteen ninety one, and it's still going. Is back to basics. Yeah. So so basically, my question was going to be like, how did you get involved with everything? So there's one thing being you know um, being a, a raver as it were, and just enjoying the music and going out and you know all that. Like, how did you get involved in you know taking part? In these nights well well i mean you know we'd, we'd always sort of been involved like around home like me and my friends in putting on little parties and stuff like that and just kind of gathering everybody together 
Um, kind of, I was always a focal point of getting people together at home. Come on, let's go and do this. Let's go and look at that. Uh, so that you know, and then we kind of sort of fell out in clubbing because it got so violent. Um, you know, it went from being Manchester to Gunchester in about eighteen months, right. and um, we saw around. This was around ninety one, and we kind of turned my back on nightclubs, um, like you know the big clubs and uh, and that scene in Manchester and and Leeds and stuff. I sort of turned my back on it and kind of got more interested in sort of um, sort of the acid jazz acid jazz thing. I'm going to kind of nicer clubs where you have to dress up a bit more, like Venus in Nottingham, and there was a warehouse uh, there was a, in Leeds, there's a place called Vague. You kind of had to dress up a bit more, and it was all like um, couples going out rather than, you know, violent gangs, I guess. Um, so, uh, where am I? So, anyway, around 94, um, me and Sarah, we went, to, we went to India, and we were in India for a year. And during this time, Sarah's sister Charlotte um, kind of got with Darren Hughes, who was uh, who was running Cream at the time. So when we came back from when we came back from India, I met Darren, and kind of like uh, and I went to Cream, and uh, and my love for Acid House was just reborn. I'm going the first night I went to Cream, I was like, "Fuck me, this is exactly what we've been missing." Because uh, what Darren had managed to do, he'd managed to like it captured the like original ethos uh, the original feeling of acid house but taking it to a super club you know and the feeling in liverpool i don't know if you've ever parted in liverpool but the people there are just wonderful you know it's like it's like you're with us tonight you're one of us sort of thing for even if it's just for that night you are one of us it's a family thing is liverpool and i just like fell in love with it and um you know, it's kind of like that's a bit of a loss for something to do. When I came back from India, I was thinking like, uh, you know, I like retrain to do something else, or you know. But but ultimately, I I knew that I wanted to carry on travelling. And um, Dan's like, uh, you know, well, you know, have a think about what you want to do when uh, when you when you're away next, and uh, maybe maybe go and uh, work for us in Ibiza. So I kind of did some work for him in Liverpool for Cream like um, uh, running posters and uh, putting flyers around the city and blah, 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 that kind of vibe. And uh, he, he offered us, a, he offered us, a, oh, and Sarah was doing the merchandise at the cream shop at the time because her background is in, um, is in merchandise, uh, you know, clothing. Um, so she, um, she was doing that and I was doing the posters and flyers around Liverpool and, and the surrounding towns and things. And then we went away to India again. And when we came back, we went, to Ibiza, um, and uh, and kind of ran the PR for the first time. Is that? Yeah, this is the first time. This was in '86. The first time we came to Ibiza was '86, and we ran the PR team for um, for Cream at Amnesia. Do you mean? Do you mean nine? Do you mean '96? You do mean '96, right? Sorry, yeah, sorry, '96. Yeah, yeah. Just want to step back and talk a bit more about just Cream in Liverpool because that was a. I, I never went to it, but it was a huge thing like in the you know just you know picked up a copy of mix mag in like 1995 and just everything is cream yeah it was massive i mean they they did things like they they sponsored the match ball at liverpool and stuff like that do you know what i mean it was absolutely massive and they how did it start though because i mean darren was presumably promoting before that but like i mean no darren no darren was at university darren was at university in manchester and uh it would go because it was going to like most excellent and stuff like that and he was going out with a girl at liverpool university and uh it was spending weekends in liverpool and um 
there was there wasn't a great deal going on. There'd been like there'd been clubs there that um, like uh, what were they called? Oh five one and um, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so and he he just decided that he wanted to put on a party for his girlfriend and their friends. And they started out in the back room of a nightclub that was already open. And uh, it just escalated, you know, as these things do. If you get a good group of people together, uh, and they were all art students and things like that, so everybody in the art college and stuff started going to this, uh, this back, the back room at uh, Nation um, on a Saturday night. And um, they, they eventually got the opportunity to do some one-offs and things like that. And Andy Carroll was involved and James Barton, obviously. Um, James Barton was like a, a, a local DJ that had been on the scene forever. Like kind of, at, you know, he was he was right at the start of Acid House in Liverpool in the, in the eighties, as was Andy Carroll, um, and they kind of got together with a guy called Paul Bleasdale as well. And I think that they did like one-off bank holiday weekends, and it was absolutely huge, you know, like fifteen hundred, two thousand people or something like that. And then they had uh, so Stuart Davenport offered them a weekly. He was the owner of the the nation venue he offered them um like a weekly a weekly residency and um it this would have been i'm guessing about 94 yeah 93 94 and it, it just escalated you know they um they it, it's a it was a time and a place thing yeah absolutely i can see that but like um as you mentioned they were like doing stuff like you know sponsoring match balls and stuff and it really became a, a kind of a brand do you know what i mean for want of a better word no it, it was yeah that the ministry of sound i think it, it pretty much used ministry of sound as a blueprint and uh and bettered it you know it did a better job and so was it i mean who was it that was le- like kind of you know developing that side of it do you know like yeah darren right 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 okay yeah, it was Darren. I mean, they they employed marketing people like you know they 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 bought the logo for example. He didn't draw the logo. That was like kind of something that uh, they got developed for him. Sure. And there were who was it? I can't remember the marketing company. But it really speaks to a kind of like I mean, it's a it's a real kind of vision to kind of deliver that you know because from being a student and like starting a starting a club in a you know, in the back room and then building it out within within a couple of years really into this huge brand. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he wasn't on his own. They had like, you know, they had some great officers. They had a woman working for them called Jane Casey, who was like, she's been on the Liverpool scene forever. She was in a band called Big in Japan uh, with Holly Johnson from uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And, you know, so she was part of the whole post-punk scene in Liverpool, at Eric's and that. Um, So, you know, she kind of did their local press and stuff and they got the end like Darren he, he had a vision and he knew how to do it uh, and he just uh, you know he employed the right people to help him get there you know right down to things like you know sourcing sound systems from the sound factory in New York and getting Steve Dash on board to come and develop a sound system for him so that there was always something every week there would be something for the press to talk about uh, you know that, and, and I think that that's that's how you do these things so there's always a story you know, it's never just, oh, this is what we do. There needs to be a story. Each time you open, there's a new story. We've had, like, we've got a new glitter ball or we've got, like, a new sound system or we're trying this, like, free water bar. You, do you know what I mean? They, they were really good at that. Yeah, I mean, that completely explains just the level of press coverage that they got because it was it was ridiculous, as I said. Like, Yeah, exactly. You don't actually have to do too much. You just have to do things like, you know, 
like see opportunities where they arise. So somebody died because they couldn't get water in the club. So therefore this week we've got free water in our club. You know, those kind of things grab people's attention and he was really good at that. And actually this this sort of reminds me of um, of something we talked about with Debridge on the show, which was the Criminal Justice Act of 94, which was talked about... That also helped a lot. Well, yeah, yeah, I was going to say. So like, I mean, like an, an effect of that was to kind of bolster small well in indoor club venues basically is that i think that's probably fair to say yeah 100 percent. it took the rave inside so i mean yeah tell me a bit about what you like your experience of that in a sort of practical sense because it was talked about so much like well i mean you know we like to go into raves we like to go into raves and stuff like that but it's not it's not very nice if you're a woman having to piss in the fucking field is it right and uh, it kind of, it just, it, you know, it just made it made it made things safer, it made things cleaner and just easier, B- better sound systems. Yeah, it's just, it's just bad though, isn't it? Because like it got such a bad press at the time. It's like this Tory, t- the Tories killing the rave scene. But then people, when I talk about it to people now, it seems to be viewed in quite kind of a positive light. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, di- different people. I mean, as I said to you, Paul, like we'd sort of turned our back on clubbing because in the north of England it had got too violent. Um, um, so, like, as soon as they started like employing decent door staff that weren't gangsters, and there were, you know, like Darren always worked hand in hand with the police in Liverpool. So, you know, he he wasn't ever threatened by uh, like gangsters for you know you've got to give us half of your takings tonight or anything because right from the very off they had armed police outside and stuff protecting people so although you know some of the elements of going to a nightclub that was a lot of fun at the start you know it being edgy and there being some dodgy folk over there and and what have you soon became very fucking tired to be fair mate i didn't you know it's not it's not nice is it being worried about you know are you going to get a cab all right uh, is somebody gonna like take your money off your your what you know your belongings off you whilst you're waiting outside to get in or something so it's kind of like you know Darren did get stick from some corners for like involving the police right from the start but you know I think overall like people you know the general people who went to the club uh, appreciated it yeah absolutely I mean it makes sense doesn't it do you know what I mean you don't like you say you don't want to be confronted with those elements and I mean there is a kind of novelty aspect to it <laughs> when you first encounter that kind of stuff but it as you say gets old pretty quickly yeah yeah exactly you, exactly you, you, everybody has a double in the dark side don't they right but uh it, but it's not but it's not a way it's not a way of life for most of us yeah sure so um when did the cream guys start the Ibiza night and I was like to what extent was that like a like a logical choice for them, would you say? Because I mean, like, as as I you know mentioned, like, like building out this brand in such a kind of like you know competent way, in, and and like even if you're using kind of a ministry as a as a kind of template for doing it, but had ministry been doing nights in a beef by that before? Actually, that they, I'm not so sure. You know, I don't think they had. Right. Uh, I think that I think Darren and Darren and James was were 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 uh, two of the first kind of like major league club promoters to 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 start in IB from they started out first at coup they did like some one-offs at coup they did some one-offs at coup and then and then they did after parties at space and that would have been about 94 I'm guessing uh, 94 95 coup's called privilege now privilege yeah 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 and that was when they were all that was when the clubs were all still open air 
Okay, so I just wanted to sort of clarify how much of a kind of revolutionary move that was, was to, to, to pitch up in a beefer and start doing nights there. And, and as, you, as you mentioned at, at the start, like, you know, you, you guys were seen as disrupting what, what had been this kind of Ibiza kind of hippie yeah. thing. So like, tell me to... Yeah, I mean, Charlie Chester, Charlie Chester had been like running uh, running events out here. He's, he, he ran Flying Records and he'd been doing like a kind of uh, group holidays over here. Most fam- the, the most famously captured on a short film about chilling and that was about the 91 season. So, and, uh, and there were other like British promoters doing bits and pieces here, but I think that, you know, Darren and James were definitely the first people to kind of kickstart the whole Brits invasion, if you like, and they quickly followed by Ministry of Sound and Renaissance at Pasha that Danny, Br- Danny Whittle brought to the, brought to the island. Danny Whittle's from, uh, from Stoke and he'd got connections from doing parties over, over there and he brought those events to Pasha. Um, and then, yeah, so I'm, I'm guessing I, I wasn't actually involved then. You know, I was I was on holiday for uh, for most of that for, from '94 until until I started working here in '97. I was away travelling, um, so I didn't really see the kind of a, the the early early start of it and 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 how it was received and stuff. But I'm guessing not particularly well at the start because um, you know pe- the, the the Spanish clubs and the people who were working in the Spanish club and industry. They weren't too open armed at the start because obviously we were being we came in with with a ready made crowd and and it was super successful. I mean, as soon as the kind of Brits arrived here, you know, nightclubs that had been doing like seven hundred people, eight hundred people a night was all of a sudden doing like fifteen hundred, two thousand people, mm. and I, I guess that kind of sticks in your throat a little bit if you've been if you've been like toiling away for years and you know you've been doing you think you're doing okay and then somebody just turns up overnight and it's bam. There you go. This is how you do it. It's uh, it's uh, you know, it's it's a, it's it's not it's not great, is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I guess it it brings with it opportunities. I guess as well. Well, yeah, of course it does. I mean, you know, th- there were an awful lot of complaints even when I started, even when it had been going for a few years. There was there was there were still complaints, but ultimately. I think most people did really well out of it. Yeah. You know, the, all of the feeder bars that grew up around the clubs and stuff. You know, when we first got here, there was like, there was a few places that you would go to. Now there's like thousands of different places that are all offering like DJs playing and sunsets and, you know, half, half price club tickets. And there's a massive, massive business surrounding the nightclub industry here. Yeah. Okay. So, so when you started working, you were obviously doing cream. So what was your... Tell me about the nature of your involvement from the start and then developing. So when I first started out here for Cream, I was in charge of like a, me and a guy called Tommy Ryan. We did like a, the decor um, at Amnesia. We would go and like we would put up all these like uh, like um, at the time I think we got Paul Oakenfold as our resident, and he was celebrating ten years of Acid House, and it was just as he'd started Perfecto. So it's kind of like he'd got that Goa trans thing going on, and he'd had all these like trolls made and like all kind of fluoro things. So I uh, on, a, on a Thursday, I would put up decor, collect DJs from the airport, and, uh, and then the rest of the week, and, and then obviously like kind of look after, look after artists and stuff on the Thursday night. And the rest of the week, we'd be out on the streets like postering and flyering. And we'd just like kind of work, work a year's sort of work in three months. Uh, you know, just get your head down and like graft. Um, it was like good times and you know I was kind of young enough to do it then 
So yeah. So what? So what else? What else was going on on the island then? Like how? I presume there was a lot. Like the big parties. The big parties in San Antonio. It was Clockwork Orange. Um, and there were things going on at Esparadis. There would be like foam parties and water parties. And then in town, it was like Pasha, and they had like a Renaissance made in Italy. Was big made in Italy. It's a big Italian party, obviously, and it would be themed each year. So they'd have the pirate party, or they'd have like gangsters party, and it would all, all like very, very concept heavy. A lot of the kind of European nights, and then Renaissance Ministry of Sound. Uh, and then El Davino would have like Miss Money Pennies and uh, various various other kind of like European uh, promotions there. And then Privilege had flight things um, again. The, the, they were kind of concept heavy. You have like a uh, nights called Brazil, uh, which would be obviously kind of loads of Brazilian dancers and uh, all that kind of sambri music. And then there was a uh, La Vaca Assassina, which was kind of a great big. It was a gay party that then developed into La Troya. Um, um, so, and I think that they were based in Barcelona and that was very kind of um, like transvestites and, and muscle Marys. And it was like really, really kind of like eye-opening and pretty cool uh, like night that. And then you've got space going on and they did, uh, they just did after hours, like a, a few days a week, a few mornings every week after, after kind of, after there'd been big nights on elsewhere. But there was a lot less, like uh, in a week, there might be sort of four or five events to go to in IB for when I first got here, you know, that you, that, you, you, that you needed to go to. Now there's at least four or five every night. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, going back to your first question, what's happened? There's a lot more variety. Uh, there's a lot more things to do and there's a lot more people. Okay. And, um, yeah, you mentioned that all oh, the clubs are outdoors back then like when i first started going over it was just at the point where like the roofs were getting built and i was started to have to have missed all that stuff i was i first came over. in fact you booked me for the first time i, I came over in 2012 i think it was yeah yeah um so it must have been a different vibe i guess the, the classic thing was like the terrace would be outdoors and then you have the inside room right that's the kind of classic abifa thing yeah i mean space was space was definitely one of the last sort of like big uh, venues to have a have an open air area. I mean, we I I kind of missed it all as well. To be fair, I think like pri- when I got here in ninety ninety six, um, I I think that like privilege had still got open air area, and I I saw the last summer of amnesia with uh, with an open terrace as well. And you know, it's it, it's 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 fantastic, isn't it? In summertime, dancing outside under the stars, and obviously when the sun comes up and. Uh, and you can kind of see everybody. It's uh, it it it's really nice. It's not so nice as you get older. Um, you know, you <laughs> probably shouldn't be still out and about when the sun's coming up, should you? It's like vampires or something. But um, you know, and yeah, space space is open terrace. Yeah, it was it 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 was wonderful. But you know, I that what those weren't my favourite years at space. To be fair. Like and the terrace was never my favourite space. There, the inside was always my thing. You know, I like I like nightclubs to be dark and like you know, a bit sort of a, a bit moody. To be perfectly honest with you, I'm not all I'm not all about happy people dancing in the morning. Yeah. So okay. So so you, you were working at Cream for a couple of years, but then you moved to Australia, didn't you? Yeah. So Darren left um, Cream. And um, in, in which year? Which year was that? 
this would have been 99, 90, 1999, uh, Darren left cream. I, and, um, he, I think he just got married. I was in Mexico at the time. I was in Mexico with Sarah at the time. And, um, I rang up like it was a, around Christmas time and I rang up and said, you know, and I knew that things were going on with uh, him in, him in London. He was looking to open a club in London, um, called home. Um, and, and that was kind of happening. And, uh, we were in Mexico at the time and I rung up at Christmas to say, you know, how are you doing? Uh, wish the family happy Christmas and whatnot. And he says like, uh, and I got a message from my dad, like, oh, Darren wants you to call him. So I give Darren a call and he says like, oh, we've just got this club in, in, in Australia. Uh, but they, uh, they're, they're struggling a bit. They don't really know what to do. So I want you and Sarah to go to Australia and, uh, and introduce them to Ibiza. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, all right then. Because I wasn't particularly enjoying Mexico at the time. It was like really difficult. I didn't have enough Spanish. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like we'd sort we'd, we'd planned to be there for three or four months. And I think we've got two months in and kind of we got to a point where we were like, where shall we go next, you know? And at that time, a lot of the countries around Mexico weren't that safe to travel. Like Guatemala and stuff was in civil war and El Salvador. And those countries, they, weren't, they, were, they were still a bit edgy. And uh, not having too much Spanish at the time, I was like, mm, maybe we should like think about going somewhere else. And so his offer for us to go to Australia came just at the right time. So we're like, yeah, absolutely. So I went home, like got on a, got on a flight back from uh, from Mexico, straight back to England. And within two weeks, uh, I was I was in Australia, like uh, running home over there. We set we set up home in Sydney. So just to clarify, the home in London it opened, I believe. The just about the same time as Fabric. Yeah, about a week before. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, and and it was like both of those two openings were like it was kind of billed as being like this kind of like the new beginning for kind of clubbing in London. That was the kind of like journalistic take on it. Yeah, and obviously Fabric's still there, but Home is definitely not still there. So, like, what ha- what happened there? And like, no, I mean, it was a night. It was a nightmare. F- it was a nightmare for Dad. And I mean, he basically got like. He, he got sold a lie. You know, the, the people who had t- taken him in uh, promised him the earth, they promised him a late license and they told him that it was going to be this, this and this. And then he, he got there kind of and, and he couldn't get a license past two o'clock. And then obviously fabric opened down the road with a license till seven in the morning. And, you know, with really edgy programming and stuff. And, he, and you know, Darren was kind of stuck in Leicester Square with like the Leicester Square crowd with a license till two in the morning. And it was just like, you know, he was banging his head against the brick wall, essentially. I was like, well, what was it like, Daz? And he's like, well, it was all right, because Fabric opened. So I went there every week. <laughs> so it's like, um, so it's kind of funny. Uh, but this, all this, whilst this is happening, me and Sarah are in like Australia are having the best time ever, because our club like in, in Sydney was absolutely fantastic. The home in Sydney was wicked. Right really really good you know because we basically it's, it was all it's sunny all the time there and we just basically took the kind of blueprint of what we'd been doing at cream in ibiza and and did it over there and they'd not it was the first kind of super club or the first really big venue to open in australia you know they'd had raves and stuff like that before at the Horden pavilion and stuff but they never had like a regular weekly club for like three thousand people and uh, you know, we just kind of like took what we knew there, what we what we'd learnt in IB for dancers, and you know that kind of high energy Euro um, dance music that you get here in summer, and and took it there, you know, and it was just like huge. I mean, that was the first time you'd run something, though. I'm guessing is that correct? 
Well, the first time we'd run something on our own, but we'd been running like uh, we'd been running the business, uh, the cream business in in Ibiza for uh, for the previous two summers. Right. So we knew about like you know we knew how to do how to run PR teams, or we knew about like uh, pre you know sorting out pre ticket sale venues, and you know we knew the kind of business of running nightclubs. I mean, it's not that difficult to be fair. Um, you know, and, but and and everything else, you can kind of you know. And we'd got we knew what to do Paul we'd been out we'd been out since being 14 I think and by this time we were 28 so you know we'd had 14 years in clubs and stuff we knew what to do yeah 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 and uh, you know I kind of like at this you know one of my main things was like you know I need to I need to be fully in charge of like the music and stuff there and, and I, and I want to take a DJ with me and I took I took the uh, I took Jason Bay who was our resident at Amnesia for Cream and that I took him there uh, with us as a kind of right this is this is this is, he's my big swinging dick essentially uh and i'm gonna I'm, i'll build a music team around that right and because uh, he knew what he knew what to do he'd been resident at amnesia so he played like seven days a week there so he playing water water like parties and phone parties and like you know play for clockwork orange play for cream it play for like a side trans nights uh you know all sorts of different things so he absolutely knew how to work all sorts of different crowds which is what you need in a resident dj when you're setting something up you know you don't need somebody who's niche and they just do one thing you need somebody that can like react to who's there and and build something solid with those different people you know right create create regulars coming right and then so how did you what was that musical strategy that you built around him what was it yeah yeah yeah. so uh, just to clarify though you were in charge of programming the venue how many nights a week yeah we had to do everything paul like we got no no uh we did thursday night friday night saturday night sunday night right okay uh, so yeah so that's what i'm from from 10 from 10 till 7 four nights a week <laughs> right exactly so so that's what that was my question like how did you what was the strategy because obviously you can't do the same thing every night so how did you look at it no no you can't i mean what would what i did like you'd have the jesus it's a long story is this man um i mean when when we first when we first when we first got there they got a saturday night that wasn't very successful a sunday night that was hugely successful a gay night on a sunday night and that was the thing right so i'm thinking right okay so we've got that that's really successful. So we'll do another gay monthly on a Thursday, and then we just do a an and and, we, and I would do different Thursday nights for a start. So I knew that we had to open on a Thursday. So we do. I, I I involved like some other local promotions for a Thursday night and started doing some other things and just making up nights, essentially, uh, with different people who were who I thought who I thought were good DJs locally, you know, and trying 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 to fo- focus on giving them some identity so that they could invite their friends around. Everybody felt a little bit kind of like pushed out of it, uh, the local people. So I had my first job to do there was like bringing people back in, making them feel comfortable to come to the venue. Uh, it had been opened really badly, um, you know, kind of really elitist. And the, the whole point of like what we do, you know, the whole acid house thing, if, if you guess it, it's about being inclusive, not elitist. And they just didn't understand that. So there were some bridges to be built. Uh, so I had a gay night. I had like um, I had um, a, a various monthly things. Uh, the Saturday night we just built around the residence, and th- this venue was amazing. It had got lots of different rooms, so I could like, you know, 
rather than it just being like one dimensional we'd have all sorts of different things i got a breakbeat room i'd got like funk and hip-hop room and uh and just worked it like that so you've got different crews that obviously bring different people to the table and like how much were you um well you, you mentioned that you you know made a big effort to like to develop local djs and and get the sort of like local scene working but like how much was um you know how much how much were you bringing other people over like international acts and that kind of stuff well, not very often, to be fair, because, like, obviously, to fetch somebody from, like, England to Australia is cost, cost you, like, even then, cost about £2,000. Um, so we would do, like, I guess, in, you know, in a, in a year, we'd probably maybe do six international artists um, that, uh, that that were about. Um, I mean, I'd, as, as you said earlier, it was our first time of kind of running something properly, so I kind of, I found my feet uh in australia you know like uh, like working with people who were already touring djs and stuff like that it was the first time i'd worked with on that kind of thing rather than booking them ourselves and flying them over kind of you know uh splitting splitting costs on flight shares and things with people like learning about how to do things like that um so yeah like uh they, it was my school essentially uh was was uh, was sydney it, it, I, I learned a lot there, you know. In, in those two years, I mean, as I say, we didn't, we didn't even, we didn't take any holidays in two years. I was there two and a half years, I think, and I don't, I, I think I went to like Byron Bay twice and Melbourne once, and they were all kind of work related. We just worked. And then why, like, why, why was it, why was it good, like as a as a club, in your opinion? Um, wh- why did I enjoy it? I enjoyed it cause, uh, because no, that, I, I that got was, to that see. Wasn't, that wasn't my question. Why was it? Why was it a good club? Why was it a good club? Um, I think because because it was a new because it was new it was a new concept. You know, it was kind of the first time that uh, the pe- the people in Sydney had been able to on on a regular basis get together with so many people. And you you know, I mean, at that time, at the time, like the the club, big clubs were what people wanted to go to. It was like you know, it's it's fantastic. There's the the energy of being surrounded by three thousand like minded souls all locked onto the same groove. You know, on the same drugs, whatever, seeing the same lights. There's, there's nothing that can beat that feeling uh, when you, when you first experience it. And um, it, and it was it was a brand new venue. It had got like the most amazing sound system and lighting system in there. Um, it's it was on Darling Harbour, so you leave in the morning at seven o'clock, and you're not like in the in the in Salford Keys or something like that. You're on you're in Sydney Harbour. <laughs> it's absolutely stunningly beautiful. You know, like with like great restaurants to go to for a cup of coffee afterwards, and you know it it it, it ticked an awful lot of boxes, Paul. Okay, so give me a few examples of particularly good nights that you had at home. Yeah, time in Sydney was pretty much taken up with working, um, and you know memories are pretty uh, thin on the ground. To be fair, in uh, in regards to actual sets and stuff, I mean there were some brilliant DJs that played for us, like you know Ben Corbell, Declan Lee. Uh, Simon Caldwell was particularly amazing. He went on to do uh, a, an event called Mad Racket, which uh, I think it's still going today, and that's absolutely superb. As all kind of broken beat and moody man, and like um, you know, all sorts of kind of quite interesting niche stuff for Sydney at the time. To be fair, um, Goodwill was also brilliant, um, and he did some nights uh, that kind of did all the Delic Cartery stuff and uh, Mark Free. You know, they kind of introduced me to that kind of. Um, Chicago-y sound, which was great, but but ultimately, like my fondest memory, um, and you know, it was kind of uh, the sort of 
one of the highlights of my kind of career promoting, to be fair, was um, Carl Cox on Bondi Beach on Millennium Eve. Um, you know, th- that was a gig that, you know, we sold, we sold 17,500 tickets in six hours on the day of release. Um, it even made it into a Sydney Morning Herald front page. Um, there were queues round the block um, when we uh, when we announced that uh, the tickets were going on sale, and um, you know that kind of catapulted us into a into a different stratosphere when it comes down to um, like promoting in the city. Um, all eyes were on us then, um, and you know the the night went off really really well. It was absolutely superb. You know, I have to thank everybody involved in that uh, for making it such a highlight of our of our careers really. Um, it was phenomenal. We got some friends over from the UK to play with us as well, John Carter and uh, Ralph Lawson, and um, you know that they were uh, they were super. We kind of did a few different things, you know, similar to what the club was like. We had a few different rooms uh, with kind of broken beat, breakbeat thing, which was huge in Sydney at the time. And then obviously the main stage with Carl Cox and doing this kind of millennium techno set. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't too cringeworthy either. It's actually really fucking good, to be fair. Just just what was needed for that uh, for that time and place, I guess. Yeah, okay. I mean, I remember reading about that party. Um, <laughs> I actually had no idea that you were involved with it. Um, wow, okay, yeah. that's. I mean, that's like history right there, I guess, um, properly. So you were there for like two and a half years in total. Yeah. Um, what was it that brought you back? What brought us back? Right? I'd had enough of Australia. It's a long way from home. Not just like, a, you know, it's like it's a long way from home in, in actual physical miles, but it's mindset and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of, I kind of got tired explaining myself to people all the time. And, um, you know, I just sort of, uh, we, we'd, we'd, we'd done enough time there. I didn't particularly like the people that were working there uh, towards the end. The, the venue got bought by a guy called Simon Page, who I just didn't get on with. We, did, we didn't see eye to eye. Um, so, And also, the opportunity came. Darren had left home in London, and he'd, uh, he'd, set, up, uh, he'd, he'd set up something in Ibiza, and we, kind of, we were missing Ibiza and stuff. Um, so he says, like, uh, if you want to come home, there's, there's, like, there's work here for you. Um, so we were like, yeah, right, that sounds okay. Yeah. Um, and it sort of like, you know, we moved, uh, and there was lots of work as well, because once he'd, once he'd left home, um, there was a, we, um, we set up the, uh, the, the festival in Winchester as well, Homelands. Uh, so there was kind of that to work on, which always like that, you know, working on a festival tickled my fancy as well as the IB for things. So during the winter, we were kind of like getting ready for, uh, for the, we would go on holiday for a couple of months and then come back and live in London. And I'd not lived in London before, so we are living in London for four months, uh, setting up the festival Homelands in Winchester. Mm. And then we'd go to Ibiza and live there for four months. So it's kind of like a, just an awesome, awesome uh, lifestyle opportunity. Okay. And, then, and the thing in Ibiza was We Love... Uh, it started out at Space as home, right? Okay. And it last that lasted for a year, oh, and right, uh, right, and right. then they kind of like once once Darren had cut up, once Darren had like kind of severed his, his ties with those guys, we set up Wheel of, and that's when me and Sarah came back. Right. Okay. So um, yeah, tell me about that. What was the the kind of concept of We Love musically? Yeah, right. So when uh, I mean they they started home and I was still in Australia. They started home in at Space, 
for the for the, for the first year, and I was still in uh, I was still in Sydney, um, and it was kind of I think what they'd, they'd gone over. There were, it was the concept was a twenty four a twenty four hour party or twenty two hour it was. They started at seven in the morning and went through till six or something six five or six the following morning. And it was inside and outside. And they, they've got long sets with people like Danny Tenaglia and uh, Francois Cavorkium, Sasha, Digweed. And it was very much that Twilo kind of vibe, you know, that like the, the start of the ch- tribal house, but a lot of the kind of leftovers of progressive house um, and stuff. Kind of like, kind of chin strokery, blokey stuff. And, and then on the terrace, he, he was working with people like, you know, Knuckles and uh, Dave Morales, uh, Eric Murillo. So it was kind of that American kind of house sound on the terrace and uh, and the more sort of tribally progressive thing inside. Um, and so I came over, I came over the following year when it was, uh, when it was, um, when it became We Love. And I think that Sasha left then. We still used him as a DJ, but he was no longer like musical partner. He'd been brought in by Darren at the start. Uh, to uh, to to help program. Oh right. Yeah, no, Sasha. Sorry, I, I missed that. Uh, Sasha was originally a partner in uh, in uh, in Home and Wheel of as like um, I think he was like the musical director. Um, anyway, when I got here, he sort of like kind of ceased being that uh, because Darren had got somebody else to work with then, and um, I kind of slowly set about changing it from that really. Uh, the, that kind of progressive sound wasn't anything that I ever really liked. To be fair, I wanted to bring it, make it more sort of techno than than that kind of, you know, a bit more harder edged. And I focused, uh, I focused on the inside, and Darren focused on the uh, on the terrace. And at that time, we'd just got two rooms uh, at the venue, and uh, you know, I kind of, I, I sort of, I, I looked at this, you know, the, all the kind of Detroit guys and the Chicago guys, and I focused my attention on the inside. And then over the years, like we were doing, at the same time, as I say, we were running the festivals um, in the UK. uh, And we've got like eight different arenas there. So loads of different music. And I was absolutely in my element. And then the festivals came to a stop. You know, we we had one bad year where it rained, like really, really badly. And then the following years, we couldn't... Which year was that? I think that would have been about like 2004. Right. Maybe 2004, it, it pissed it down. And, uh, and from then on, like 2005 and 2006, we didn't get the pre-sales needed to, like, uh, you know, to, to make the business viable. It was just like, you know, everybody was waiting right until the last minute to buy tickets to see what the weather was going to be like. And obviously, as a festival, you've got to pay a lot of money up front uh, before. So the cash flow, f- you know, various things, basically. A lot more competition in the festival market and the fact that we couldn't sell pre-sale tickets um kind of brought brought that to a head and we're sort of disappointed about it but at the same time that that was happening space had to have a new terrace built like with a roof on and they also had these other rooms built in the venue so all of a sudden there was like six rooms at space to uh to program so i was like well we'll just take our festival concept and do it at space every week so you know we've kind of programmed all of these different rooms with people that we'd been working with at the festivals and that's kind of right, uh, that was sort of like about, I'm guessing about 2005, 2006. So give me an example of like, like a, a typical night then that you would, um, obviously kind of like with the, you know, in the new rooms and the different stuff you, you were programming, like what, what were the rooms and what, who was playing? Well, right, so upstairs we have the premier etage, which means, you know, first floor. 
And there I would have people like a, a guy called Mr. Doris who were, who would sort of playing like kind of, you know, sort of post break beats, I guess, you know, kind of post finger licking uh, stuff. And uh, I would have him on there and Ian Blevins playing kind of deep house, very eclectic selections and stuff. And that was open air. Uh, and then downstairs we had the, the Sunset Terrace and I would have people like Tom Novi and Alfredo playing like kind of high energy Balearic music. And then the Covert Terrace would have, um, that would have people like Steve Lawler and, you know, they were residents. And, uh, I mean, you're putting me on the spot here. I can't remember hardly any of it. <laughs> uh, and then and a place called El Salon that I used to have like hosted like local bars, like, um, you know, bars in IB for town. I would get their DJs to do it so that their crew would move in there. And then inside I would like, it would be either like, I would do an international gigolos night with DJ Hell and those guys, or I would do um, Ed Bangers with the French crew, or I'd do my Detroit thing. And then the terrace, as I say, would be like Danny Tanaglia and Steve Lawler and that kind of more sort of tribal vibes. Uh, but the the whole thing, Paul, was like, if you went with a group of friends and not everybody liked the same music, they could all go and just go into different rooms and like you'd meet occasionally in like by the toilets or whatever. And it, it, and it was about trying to recreate a, a festival atmosphere in a nightclub. Right. And then how was that? How did that fit into like the other stuff that was going on in Ibiza? At that time, as you mentioned, yeah, we were talking about... Well, we were lucky in the fact that we had lots of different rooms. So, you know, we stood out massively because we just had... We could offer so many different options. I mean, I think we would, like... I was booking between, like, you know, 20 and 35 DJs a night. <laughs> I mean, that's a huge amount of work just to get started, right? Yeah, and, I mean, we were open for so many hours. Like, as I say, at the start, we were open 23 hours. So I was programming music for 23 hours across, you know like multiple rooms um so that that's what that's what stood out uh, uh, against anything anybody else were doing that space we were the, the only people to do the uh, the long sessions as well all the other events were either nighttime or morning events so there was just like the so one guess, week thing right so i guess the majority of the DJs are playing like three four hour sets right well i mean no not always you know, I mean, sometimes I'd have like absolutely like, you know, 35, 35 DJs on. They were playing like hour and a half, two hour sets. But then I would have some DJs that would play five and six hours. Like when Jeff, Jeff Mills was our resident for, for many years and he'd always play at least six hours. Tanaglia would always play six hours. Uh, Lawler would play sort of five, six hour sets. And so some of the DJs got like long sets and then some people would get like hour and a half. It depends, doesn't it? I mean, not not all DJs can play a good six-hour set. In fact, very, very few can, to be honest with you. Most DJs have got a good hour and a half, two hours in them. And then after that, it's sort of like, yeah, all right, mate. <laughs> right. Um, so what what were the other big nights in Ibiza in the mid-2000s then? Like, where were you fitting in in terms of, like, that that side of stuff? Uh, that I mean that at the sort of same time as we were at the same sort of time as we were getting popular, uh, uh, Cocoon Monday nights at Amnesia started becoming really popular. Um, so you know they they went down that whole minimal route, and um, and you know and they got a lot of like you know Euro people there, and I, and I just thought fuck that, that's boring. Let's go maximal, and we just I was booking all that kind of uh, blog house stuff, all the headbangers and. And uh, and then international gigolos and stuff like that. So we went the opposite way to that. 
And then in between us, that was also really popular, was DC10 Monday Morning Circo Loco that kind of took the best of the two things. You know, they would have DJs that played for us on the Sunday and they would have DJs from, that were going to play on Monday nights playing during the day as well. So, you know, they'd got two areas. They'd got the terrace and they'd got the sort of inside. So they'd do a kind of blog housey sort of thing on the terrace. And then inside would be all the kind of, you know, Villa Lobos and, and stuff like that. So... um you know, those were, those were the three sort of big nights around around the sort of mid-2000s, I guess. But who else was doing successful? Manumission was still around at this point, you see. So when when Circo Loco started, it was obviously Mondays, and it, it started in the morning, right? It was a daytime party. Yeah, yeah. That People would go from us on a Sunday, they would go from us, and they'd go straight to Circo Loco. Right, and then potentially on to Cocoon. Yeah, so that was like, they, they were like our afters. Circo Loco was sort of our afters, essentially. Okay, so, so and then what was the kind of what was the kind of development path then? I mean, like, at what point did like the, the twenty? At what point did the like things start getting? I don't know what the right word is. Like, I was going to say dumbed down. But I'm not sure if that's quite the right word. Just in terms of like the restrictions and all that kind of stuff, which is which is going to take us into kind of what we were discussing at the, at the very start, which is like how how it's changed. Like, yeah, okay. So I think yeah, I think that. The biggest, the biggest change to what we were doing was like you know the kind of uh, increased competition um, directly across the road from us. Ushwire came along, and uh, you know they 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 were able to offer the open air clubbing experience um, that uh, that that we weren't any that we weren't able to offer anymore. And also that kind of you know I was sort of I mean it's you know. I'll, a lot to do with with us not keeping our eye on the ball as well. We were I was completely unaware of people like Avicii and and stuff like that. You know all of these kind of all of this EDM stuff uh, that was was happening. I had nothing to do with. I'm still listening to Jeff Mills and fucking Derek May and and thinking that that was cutting edge music or that was popular music. And uh, and all the kids were like, they, they don't, they've no idea who these old techno heads are. Uh, they they were wanting to listen to people more their own age, that like the Swedish house mafia and stuff like that, which you know I I I, I hated that that music and just didn't think why is, does anybody want to listen to this? So I just kind of like I was offered people like the Swedish house mafia to be residents. I'm like no, I don't fucking want them on. Like you know, it's a ridiculous name for a start, and the music's atrocious. <laughs> and then they became the biggest thing in the world, <laughs> and uh, and took and took and took all my customers. So, um, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's kind of partly our fault for not, you know, I, I always put on parties that I wanted to go to, Paul, and if anybody else wanted to come, then that was a bonus. Right. Now, you can't carry on doing that when you're getting five, 6,000 people there. You can get five, 6,000 people for, you know, a couple of seasons or something like that, but you can't still, you can't be so arrogant as to think that, you know, people will want to come because you've got good taste. People are different, you know, they you know what what one man thinks is fantastic another man thinks absolute bullshit which is a case in point with me and the swedish house mafia you know i should have employed younger people to like advise me but i was never very good at taking advice and you know i just wanted to do what i wanted to do essentially and uh you know it's kind of like and that you know the whole the Ushuaia people they just hit the nail on the head they saw where where it was going and they you know if you talk to like the guy that put Ushuaia 
put Ushuaia on as what's he called Jan I think he's called like he doesn't like that sort of music he's completely impersonal about it that was my that was my question because there was what well, was going to be my question because there was all sorts of sort of conspiracy theories that um were getting um uh <laughs> forward as to the um the eventual fate of space and how the kind of ownership side of it kind of like how it all fitted together so like what were the kind of like behind the scene politics to that whole thing well, I, I mean, like Pepe, the guy that um, had the had the license for space, um, he, you know, he's kind of very similar in in. It's a similar story to to, to our own, to be fair. Like he had he had an arrogance that uh, that 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 stopped him from 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 smelling the coffee. Do you know what I mean? He's like Matusas, uh, the guy that owns the wire, owned the land that space was built on right. and he'd been leasing it to Pepe for many years on a rolling year contract and he'd said like I'm opening this beach club I'd like you to be involved in the beach club but I want to use space as a kind of after hours because we have to close at 11 o'clock so I want to do the beach club that you can be partners in and then everybody will come across to space and Pepe is like nah not interested what we've got's fantastic but he'd forgotten that Matusas owned the fucking land that the club was built on <sighs> Wow. So as soon as the lease was over, as soon as the lease was over, Matutsa just didn't renew the lease. And that's literally all it was. It was as simple as that. It's as simple as and that, then, mate. And the whole, and the brand, what, so did Pepe own the space brand and all that stuff? And so it was just a case of just tearing it. Yeah, Pepe owns the space brand. But do you know what, right? It's like, it's like when you try and take, when we tried, whenever we tried to take Wheel of on tour, like you can't do it. You know, Wheel of was about like, the venue it was about the people that worked there it was about the people the regular customers you can't do we love we love space in fucking leeds yeah it's an interesting question you know, i mean it's a, and and it's the same with like pepe's pepe pepe on pepe owns the name space but space doesn't exist anymore my question was um going to be like to what extent can any like club brand tour like I mean, because I mean, Cream is like the classic one, right? We're talking about it, and like, but Cream was Cream was at Nation, yeah, and it must have been. I mean, I'm never having been there. I, I'm, I'm not talking with a huge degree of authority here, but like, it, like the the kind of original vibe, um, the quote unquote vibe of of Cream was was presumably as much as any kind of experience is really tied into that into the venue into the whole you know the actual physical experience of it yeah so how how i mean what's your answer to that question how far can any club tour i mean i've been to a few yeah i've been to a few decent things but i think the main most important thing is polishing a diamond so if you you find partners right that are already doing something that you like and that's that's already good and successful and then just look at what's successful about it and make it a bit better so if they've got like if they've got like DJs on that are doing this music, then you get better DJs on that do the same sort of music, and you just like you just polish you just polish it, make it make it better, and that's where partnerships work. It's like it's impossible to try and do something completely different um, to what's already happening there, or try and do something good if what's happening there is already shit. You know, you can build on something, but you can't do it once every six months or something like that. Right. Um, as far as club brands, club brands touring, there aren't there aren't many that do it well, are there? Like Cream did it all right in certain places. Like they had partnerships in Belfast and they did some other things that worked well. Uh, but it was all because the people that they worked with were very like minded. 
Um, I've I've been to a couple. You know, I've been to a few Faith and Boys Own things outside of London that that were good. But you know, those 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 brands never had a home, did they? Like Boys Own parties were always in different places, so it was kind of like that was part of it anyway. It's like a Jolly Boys outing. Right. Um, so that worked. Um, as far as like, we tried to do some like kind of. Uh, Wheel of Space tours um, in different places, but you cannot replicate like, you know, being in Ibiza and them being, you know, there being six, seven thousand like-minded people in seven different rooms of programming. You can't replicate that in uh, in you know some you know student union in Edinburgh right. or something. It's just not possible to do. No, I mean, can you imagine trying to like? Can you imagine trying to like tour the Bergain or Panorama Bar? It ain't gonna happen, is it? Well, that's that's it, yeah. Because I mean, like, they would, if you're trying to export a kind of, you're trying to export an experience, like how I mean, like it's it's um inextricably linked with you know the physicality of the space, I guess. Yeah, I guess you can do it. I guess you can do it if if a main focus, or if your main focus of your brand is around one particular DJ that's got something unique to his sound. And he doesn't play anywhere else. He's just your resident DJ. I guess that you could then do something like that, couldn't you? You could, you know. Yeah. But uh, but it's it's not. It's just. It's, I don't. I don't think that they're, they're ever very successful. To be fair. Okay. So, give me some examples of some particularly memorable events that you put on at Space. Most memorable nights at space. <laughs> I know a difficult question. That um, it's like a, it's like that old sixties trope. If uh, if you can remember the sixties, you weren't really there. Well, I think that uh, Wheel of at Space was a little bit like that. Um, but uh, obviously, there are some highlights. Um, and De- Derek May was always absolutely brilliant. Uh, Jeff Mills was always incredible. But I think that you know the the greatest things that we ever did were towards. You know, towards the latter years, interestingly enough, and um, I, I'm guessing it must have been around some special birthday party for space. But uh, one Sunday we had Grace Jones on live, and uh, you know I've been a fan of Grace and uh, and especially with Compass Point sessions and and stuff was uh, for for a, for an awful long time. So like getting the opportunity to get her over um, and do uh, do a night for us was just like you know. <laughs> A dream come true, to be honest with you, Paul. It was absolutely stunning. And she delivered, you know, this like, at the time, I think that she was like in her late 60s, maybe even 70 years old. And, uh, you know, she's there like hula hooping through the cons- through the entire show in a leotard. Uh, and and kind of that 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 steadily over the night got less and less until in until the, in the end she was like pretty much naked on stage like hula hooping and it was just like absolutely phenomenal and she went through all of the obvious hits and uh, which was which was great because at the time she'd got a new album out Hurricane and I was like although the album's great I kind of listened to it a few times I was thinking oh god I hope she's not just going to do songs off that you know. Uh, that nobody will know, but she came and she did everything, and uh, and it was just a absolutely wonderful evening. You know, everybody, all the old faces from back in the day came out. Everybody was there, and uh, you know, it was a resounding success. And then, uh, kind of, the other thing that stands out in in my mind uh, is is a polar opposite. And we did two shows with um, Richard uh, a- Aphex Twin uh, that were, you know. As, as you can well imagine, like Aphex Twin in Ibiza isn't isn't really a, a, a 
you know a fit that you'd imagine um, but it, it worked a treat you know we had so many people coming from um, <clears throat> coming in specifically for the shows because he doesn't play very often and uh, we had people coming from all over the world for that one and that was just those both those shows were just absolutely outrageous you know I, I kind of stood in the middle of the dance floor under the under the glitter ball which is where the sweet spot was and um you know, it was a it was a religious experience. When when this when his show had finished, and it's like it's a massive visual visual extravaganza as well as sound assault. Um, people were just like walking around, bumping into each other, and kind of like incredibly disorientated at what they'd just seen and heard. It was like you know, like nothing I've ever seen before or since. To be fair, it's absolutely amazing. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, Apex Twin, not probably the first name on people's lips when they're thinking about Ibiza. So, um, okay, t- well, tell me tell me a bit more about that, please. <laughs> I remember looking at uh, the kind of technical rider, just, you know, like kind of the week before we got the show. We got everything, uh, you know, we got all the kind of special lasers that he wanted and all the extra um, monitoring and staging and stuff for the show. And we got screens all over the place. And then I noticed, like... Um, you know, that uh, Richard needs to be in control. There's a note at the bottom. Richard needs to be in control of the sound system and there must be no limitation put on the sound system. And I thought, well, you know, the guy knows what he's doing. And it's an incredibly large sound. If you've ever been to space, it's a huge sound system on the inside. And it's always kind of been limited uh, to a certain extent because it's just too powerful for the room. And, um, and I, But I thought, well, the, he knows what he's doing, you know. So anyway, I was there on the at the sound check when he arrived and uh, he wanted to go into the amp rooms to check the amps and to just just have a play around essentially so I took him in and he turned everything off and turned everything back on and again and he's like yeah that's that should be right give it 10 minutes to reboot and we went in and uh, everything was set up for him and he proceeded to play like bass lines and uh, and 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 what have you through through the sound system through the main sound system and it was fucking ridiculous it was so loud the ceiling fell down in the main room and this is about like five or six hours before we're about to open and the actual ceiling fell down and i'm thinking oh for fuck's sake like what the hell are we doing here um anyway like i mean you know i'm kind of it wasn't the whole ceiling but sections of the ceiling fell onto the dance floor so like scurrying around collecting debris and stuff like that and the sound guys are looking at me and shaking their heads and I was like, so what, you know, what, what can I do? And they said, like, no, nothing, Mark, absolutely nothing. Let's just hope that the rest of the ceiling holds tonight. <laughs> right, yeah, okay. I mean, I've put on parties before. I think the worst thing I've ever had to do for a DJ is run down the road and get them a McDonald's. I've had to worry about whether the ceiling's going to fall in. Um, <laughs> anyway, just to bring it full circle then, um, how did you eventually come out of doing We Love and... Um, just bring us up to um, like where you are now and what you're doing now. Oh well, <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd been, I'd been, I'd sort of had it in my mind that I, that I, you know, I'd, I'd sort of had enough of of, of doing regular dates in uh, in Ibiza. I didn't really like how it, had, what it had become. You know, obviously there was some sour grapes with what was going on over the road, but that was just sort of like that was just what was happening over the whole island i wasn't in love with it anymore i didn't like the new music i was not into the edm scene at all uh, that was a popular kind of um, thing for, for for big clubs you see you've got to remember i like to break even i would have to get 4000 people in like and on a good night we'd do seven and we'd do seven and a half eight thousand people and 
like as a as a 45 year old man it's very very difficult to try and think of the music that in a night that like 8,000 8,000 20 year olds are going to want to listen to so I was kind of over it to be fair and um but during the years leading up to this, uh, I'd made friends with the guys in Croatia, Nick Colgan, Nick and Charlotte Colgan and Eddie, Eddie Callahan, And uh, they'd been over to the venue a few times and, th- and they'd always said like, you know, we've got this festival site in Croatia, we'd love you to come and do a We Love thing. And I was like, oh, I don't think we can do We Love there. You know, it's like, it's, it, and at the time it was like, a, there was a financial crisis in Europe. This is about 2008, I guess, they started meeting me. Uh, and, and I said, listen, I need to just concentrate on what I'm doing. This is quite hard work uh, at the moment. And, you know, I just need to I need to get through this. And I put it on a back burner. But I kept in contact with them because they were lovely people. You know, and I went over to Croatia a few times to party. And just, like, I really got on with these folk, these Birmingham people. People from Birmingham are lovely people, as a general rule. All the ones I've met anyway. Uh, and I just got on with their firm. And when I finished up at, up at, uh, at, at Space... Like in 2013, I sort of like uh, I, you know, I decided that I was gonna, I was gonna retire from nightclubbing. I was gonna retire from the music industry and set up my guest house. So I bought a house next door, and that that kind of winter, I worked on my house and like kind of built a guest house, and and then uh, and then that's like that spring. Um, Nick rang me up, Nick from the, from the garden, and he's like, uh, so what are you doing this summer? I was like, well, I, you know, I've got my guest house set up. He's like, oh, you need to get over here and work with us now. And it's like, no, nah, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm too busy. I've got this other thing going on. I've just come out of, you know, a long kind of nightclub relationship. And to be perfectly honest with you, Paul, when it was done, I didn't want to fucking hear dance music ever again. I was absolutely over it. You know, it, it left a foul taste in my mouth for think, various things that went on, you know, like our, our personal relationship, mine and Darren's personal relationship was at an all-time low. Um, you know, we'd both got like, like you know, terrible things going on health-wise with drugs and stuff like that. And we weren't thinking straight, so I needed, I needed time off away from it. And um, anyway, this went on. I'd run in, run in my guest house and stuff. I popped over to Croatia a couple of times to see them, you know, on a friendship basis. And like, it's about 2015, and I started like doing some bits, putting little parties on on Ibiza. And Nick rang me up again, and he's like, "What are you doing? Like putting on these little events and stuff? You need to come and work with us." And I kind of like, it, you know, I kind of just got drawn back into it essentially. And uh, you know, they wanted us. They wanted me on board, like. Um, for for what reason I'm not sure. I think they're just like hanging out with me to be fair. And um you know, it kinda of got, got got brought over there and uh, and it's been it's been absolutely fantastic because I don't have to do too much. Um, you know I don't I don't have to get too involved with anything that's going on there. It's kind of quite pedestrian is my role there. And uh it it's nice. I get to I get to like rather than uh, rather than programming uh, individual nights and things like that, we get to program like two months of festivals so we curate them with different promoters and stuff like that and the promoters take all the risk uh, pretty much on the on the talent and things like that you know it's down to them to get the tickets so i don't have any of the worries of like you know low ticket sales and things once once we've got a certain amount of tickets which isn't that many we're making money do you know what i mean because uh, we take we take our, our our revenue comes from uh food and beverage and accommodation and we've got enough accommodation for about 1,500 people. So after 1,200 people, we're making good money. Um, 
and you know and it's down to the promoters then to like kind of sort their end out um so it's it's you know there's a lot less pressure on it but i'm still involved in the music industry so it, it absolutely suits me down to the down to the bone you know yeah yeah totally um okay so last couple of questions why did you get that award from dj mike what most awesome person in music i don't, I don't think that's what it was <laughs> <laughs> i don't know uh what was it it was uh what's that was what was the award it was uh i don't know um it's nearly nearly lifetime achievement, but not not quite as condescending as that. Outstanding contribution, outstanding contribution. Just because I've been outstanding, I've been outstanding in my contributions to the music scene. I guess, I guess. I don't know. Somebody obviously thought so, didn't they? I think it's probably got something to do with Alan McGrath, who uh, who worked at, who worked at DJ Mike uh, for many years. And um, when he came over to Ibiza, he was like their Ibiza. He was their Ibiza guy, and I kind of took him under my wing, and uh, and we became good friends. And I think that like he was very upset when I was when I told him I was leaving, and stuff. And then all of a sudden, I was like kind of nominated for that. So I've, I'm guessing it was something to do with Alan McGrath. He, he it was his own his own personal kind of like <laughs> nice one, Mark. You did a good job there. <laughs> um. And then yeah, I don't. Oh. You know those things, Paul. I find highly embarrassing, man. I couldn't. I didn't even go to collect it because I just find all of those things like when anybody like people would say, "Oh, you must be proud of what you've done." Like when I was actually doing it, I, I would shrink. I'd, I hated it. I hated being in the limelight. You know, I never ever thought of myself as doing anything particularly good. I just put on parties for me and my friends, and other people liked it as well. But you know that that's what it was always about. It wasn't about making money or like doing good business or anything. It was like about putting on some wicked parties. So that, maybe that's why I won that award, eh? Maybe, maybe. Next question was obviously going to like further embarrass you, which like if you've made like a contribution like musically, I think in fairness to you and what you've just said, like music was always the kind of most important thing in what you've done over the years. Yeah, 100%. And how like... Okay, I'm, I'm I'm not sure how to frame this question like in in a way which is actually going to get a good answer out of you. But like, what what is the contribution to Ibiza particularly? Because I mean, Ibiza is like it's obviously a party island, and the party sometimes seems to come first rather than the music in Ibiza. Is that, is that a fair observation? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think so. I think I might if I if I made any contribution, Paul. I think it was like opening people's minds to different types of music. You know, I it. I, I, I let my personality shine through my programming and, and introduced introduced people to music that they might not normally hear. Oh, I mean, that's the, the mark of a good party, right? It's if people have a good time and it's dancing, but it's, it's music which is not necessarily familiar to them. Yeah, I think so, mate. I think that there's obviously there's, there's, there's an element of entertainment, but there also needs to be some kind of education or at least, you know, the opportunity to hear something new. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so just finally then, what music are you feeling right now new music give me a, give me a few examples of stuff that's stuck out to you recently yeah i mean you know i i'm 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 lucky that i get to play uh, i get to play long sets on a sunday because i'm a dj now as well as you know uh, which is kind of strange uh, poacher turned gamekeeper or gamekeeper turned poacher i'm not sure which it is uh, but um yeah it's kind of and in recent years i've sort of like because for a long time I sort of fell out of love with electronic music because you know it's a, I've been so involved in it for so long and uh, and it was kind of 
you know, I wasn't looking in the right places to find anything new and interesting because I wasn't looking at, you know, blogs and things like that. I kind of turned my back on it a lot. So I sort of like, you know, and I went down this kind of, you know, the sort of Balearic route and the really fascistical stance that I took of not playing any house music and there's no club music allowed to be played at any of my parties anymore. And, um, you know, in kind of recent years, I've sort of like pulled back on that because, I, you know, I've become more rela- relaxed in my musical tastes and got back into a lot of electronic music. And there's some wicked stuff happening. Again, it's like Manchester's leading the, leading the, leading the charge, in, in, in my opinion. And stuff like Ice Boy Violet and Aya, Tom Boogieism stuff's amazing. That, that NTS show that he does, uh, Robin Lobsters from Mobsters, that is, is absolutely class kind of like dub and um you know a lot of like festival like um sounds going on and uh, like rough doug his stuff that he's doing in manchester is really nice um yeah manchester's just a home of great music isn't it i think it always has been that area i don't know it's, it's because it's probably damp and gray all the time people stop in and make music um i like a lot of uh i like a lot of french stuff last year i was playing a lot of like uh, polo polo and pan and la femme lewis of man uh, Falucci, that kind of stuff that works really well around the pool and then there's like you know there's some great stuff coming out of Barcelona like Miras and Evil Tapes Prophets of Doom they're doing some really kind of like you know it's kind of quite a lot of cross genre in the same stuff like housey dubstep um, and you know kind of I like I like music that's all over the place like you know that, that, that starts out as one thing and turns into another and then goes back to the original I like change in music you know, I really don't like things to be too linear. But there's a lot of great music about at the moment. Uh, you know, the ambient scene's fantastic. I do an ambient, well, it's kind of jazz and ambient thing on the Tuesdays with Andy Wilson. Um, and, you know, all the kind of, uh, the new, like, uh, British contemporary jazz scene, Matthew Holsell and those kind of people, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, listen, thanks for doing this. It's been fun. Yeah, no worries, mate. It's nice to, uh, nice to talk to you, Paul. Yeah, that was Mark Broadbent. Um, Just chatting to him after we had that conversation, he thought that some of the stuff, or maybe in quite a lot of the stuff that we covered there, has been gone over before. But for me, like a lot of it was was still new, you know, and I've sat around talking to Mark on many occasions in the last few years. But there's all sorts of things that kind of lurk in the background um, and don't get discussed with details and... um, yeah, uh, different aspects to it that you don't necessarily understand that help put the um, put the pieces together, as it were. I'm just I can't get enough of those uh, acid house and like early to mid '90s stories. I mean, like a cream, as I mentioned uh, in the conversation, was such a big thing, and I was in London at the time, just beginning to go out, and all you read about in Mix Mag was cream. It was just crazy, like the frenzy around that, and. Um, yeah, I guess it's just a uh, you know reflects well on you know Darren and the team who are running it as we mentioned, just just incredible. And as I said at the top, Mark was the first promoter who brought me to Ibiza, and you know Ibiza's got a funny reputation with some people, but it's such a fun place and such a historic place. So um, yeah, anyway, don't get too misty eyed about that all that stuff. But I haven't got too much else to talk about this week. There's new music coming, but nothing on Friday. So uh, get us over on hotflush.bandcamp.com if you want to check out recent releases. 
got some new music coming personally. I'm working away on it. Got too far to go, I think, maybe, getting stuff finished. But the eternal question, it's just a fiend task for producers everywhere getting stuff finished. Anyway, um, yeah, leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this. It really does help. Join us in the Discord. Hit the link in the show notes or get me on Twitter at ScubaOfficial. Instagram is also ScubaOfficial. And um, follow the Spotify playlist in which there is most of the music that we chat about on the show. So yeah, also a good way to follow us. And um, yeah, that's about it for this week. I'll be back same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving podcast. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.